Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. Good morning, everybody. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad to see you this morning as we kick off a brand new series called Identity, walking through who it is that we are as a church, especially as a brand new church. I mean, we've been around for four-ish months so since April, so it's, it's kind of neat that we get to take stock of where we are in this season and where we're heading and, and, and who it is that we have become in the course of these four months, and then where it is that we're going with who it is that we have become, and all those wonderful things that go along with it. It's quite an awesome journey. I also want to say thank you uh, to those of you that have sent me uh, encouraging notes and brought me food and whatnot over the course of the past week, even helping out with Elliot um, when when I had surgery earlier this week. I've got another one coming, so I'm a little loopy this morning. That's my disclaimer, I'm a little loopy. I've been without painkillers for 24 hours. Uh, but you know that stuff stays in your system, so it's great. So uh, I would appreciate your prayers. I, the, the surgery is again on this coming Thursday, so it's part two um, of the same surgery, which would be awesome. We'll get the rest of those stones out of the other kidney. It's great. Um, yay, joy. Um, before I continue, let's take a moment. We can uh, dismiss our kiddos as they head out with Mr. Brett into the wonderful section of the world called, you know, kids. Uh, <laughs> again, I'll, I'll get it together here in a second. I promise my thoughts are coming to me slowly, but they're coming. Let's pray real quick because that might help. God, we thank you so much for this time that we can gather together to look at your word and to understand who it is that, that we have become, the people that you have brought together to constitute this new church. But also in the midst of that, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to where it is that you have been leading us and that we would step boldly into that space, that we would, would unapologetically be that kind of church and harness that energy, harness that power to do more good for your kingdom here in this place and now so that you may be made famous above all. Father, we pray that you would use us as a new church, that you would use us as a new body of Christ here in this place and in this space, uh, doing beautiful and wonderful things. So Father, we lift this prayer up to you, not only for our community, but but right here, right now, as we we crack open your word and we look at the things that you have told us, the stories that you have have shared with us, that we may be formed and changed into those, uh, changed into the likeness of those stories. So Father, we lift this up to you. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Every beginning has a good origin story. Every beginning has a good origin story. Immediately, my mind drifts to the origin stories of like Batman, right? Like the origin of Batman was like the death of his parents, which is quite tragic and quite horrible. But then we got Batman. Right? Or the origin story of Spider-Man, like, right? He was bitten by a toxic spider, radioactive spider, and gave him these all like pew pew sort of like, like gifts and abilities, right? Or Superman, he just came from Krypton, right? Like, great, that's a great origin story. He just came from a different planet. He is out of this world, right? These are the kinds of things. Every beginning has a good origin story. 
I, I think about my own life, like how I met Tracy and how she broke my heart uh, as a spouse slash wife before we were kind of even dating and you know, she broke up with me. Uh, we weren't even really, on the second date, she was like, can we just be friends? Like this, like she even did the two thumbs up, like bracing for an impact of some sort of like, oh, please don't, don't hurt me with your words and disappointment, right? Like, and, and then eventually we started dating again after she dated somebody else because she wasn't ready to date. Um, but that's a whole other story. But great origin stories, right? Great origin stories of good beginnings. And we've been together for, we've been married now for 16 years since. But like good, beautiful, wonderful origin stories. Or, or like how I became a pastor, right? Been doing this thing for 20 years. And thinking about how that all began, how that all came to be. Uh, literally taking place at a, at a third and fourth grade camp, summer camp, laying on a cot. Right, like the most uncomfortable beds you can think of. But of course, I was 18 at the time and got my call into ministry in that space. But it's this beautiful origin story of how things came to be, how I got this role in life that I have, or the origin story of how we even came to Seattle to start a new church, the, the, the myriad of things that had to come into play for that to take place is quite beautiful and quite amazing. And uh, that's for another time. But th th we all have these kinds of origin stories, right? Like why we chose the career that we chose or why we chose the significant other or partner or spouse that we chose or why we moved to Seattle or what brought us here. We all have these origin stories. These stories that kind of were, were, were like created a schism in our mind and all of a sudden set us forth on this brand new path of being of doing, of who we are. We all have these origin stories. When we decided to plant here in Seattle, we had already done a church plant before down in San Francisco. Some of you are well aware of this and well acquainted with it for some reason. Um, maybe because you came from here and that place. It's quite beautiful. But we, we, we moved here and had this, this idea of starting a brand new church in this place. And I, I tell you, honestly, when we left San Francisco to, to be done with that church plant, I was done with church planting. I was done with this idea of like, hey, we'll start a new church for several reasons. One, it's really hard. Uh, two, it's really exhausting. And three, it's stupid. <laughs> it's just a stupid idea. Somehow God makes stuff work in the midst of that, but it's just like, I don't know what we were thinking. In fact, there's a podcast out there right now by Gimlet Media called Startup, and they just did a sixth episode. It's all about entrepreneurs and how they start their businesses. But this last season was all about starting a church. It was quite fascinating. Listen, if you ever get a chance, it's just called Startup. And it's this latest season, there's six episodes talking about what it means and what it looked like for these people to plant a church. And we listened, Trace and I both listened to this and we're like, oh, that's so our story. That's why we didn't want to do this thing again, right? That's why we didn't want to start a new church. We had no desire whatsoever. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on which side of the same coin you want to be on, unfortunately or fortunately, God called us to do this thing again. It started to pull levers and strings and pulling some things together to make this happen. And when we finally made the decision that like, I think we're gonna do this thing, I think we're gonna pick up everything and, and move to Seattle, 
when we finally got to that point and I let the church that I was serving know, they fired me. They fired me. They're like, not cool, man. Not cool. You can just be done in two weeks. What? what? Are, are you serious? Like, that's, huh? Right? Like, we don't really want you to go do that. So to kind of stop you from doing that in the guise of we're going to let you go, we're just going to fire you and you can figure this out on your own. It was a real difficult and rough season for us. We literally lived in my parents' basement for a couple of months while Tracy drove back and forth a couple of hours on the weekends to visit us for a couple of months as we, we began to like process what was taking place, gathering together all of the resources that we would need in order to start a new church here in Seattle, like all of these sorts of things. This was the beginning of our origin story of what actually constituted this church here called United. And what's really fascinating about this is, is that we have all of these sorts of origin stories that, that, that fit in our minds, that fit in our hearts, that fit in our, our souls deep down, that kind of dictate who we are and where we're going. One of the things that, that stepped me back a little bit and why we should plant a church again, why we should start this thing called United, was one story in Scripture that has been, in many respects, a guiding force for me in my life. My understanding of who God is and how it is that He wants us not only to know Him and understand Him, but how He wants us to know and understand others, to how to treat and understand others, how to be and interact everyone that we come into contact with. This story takes place in John chapter 8. And it's one of those stories that is really beautiful, kind of confusing from time to time, but also a story that really, really anchors, I think, what we're doing here and what it is that we're trying to do here. Now, Jesus had been teaching in the temple. He had been hanging out in there, just kind of teaching the crowds that come along. This was not abnormal for Jesus. He was quite regularly in this space talking to people, connecting with people, showing them and revealing to them the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, and at the same time also teaching, just teaching normal things so that people could live the best life that they possibly could. Like, this is what Jesus did on the regular, without much trouble, without much problem. But there was a group of people that really didn't like Jesus. They didn't really like what he was talking about. They didn't like the power that he was beginning to amass with the crowds. Like he was becoming very popular at this point in time in his life and in his ministry. And people were literally flocking to him from all over the country, from outside of the cities, from within the cities, coming to hear what he had to say. And so there were always these large throngs of people that had centered themselves around him, that had gathered and collected around what he was saying. Well, this one afternoon, this group of people that were really frustrated with him decided that they were going to create a trap for Jesus. Like, we can, we can set a trap for him and figure out how not only to catch him in doing something wrong, but then we can also arrest him and be done with him. We can just throw him in jail forever and ever and ever and in perpetuity and not really have to deal with this insurrectionist again. And if we did, he'd be severely limited in his stature because then he would be an ex-con. He'd be a felon of some sort. And so, ah, then we can really diminish his power. Let's just throw him in jail. 
So Jesus is teaching here in front of this, and all of a sudden they throw this religious group, this, this extremely fundamentalist, rigid law-reading group, grabs a woman and throws her in front of Jesus and says, this woman right here has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses tells us that we should stone such people, Jesus. What say you? They step back, they watch the story unfold as they have this huge audience behind them, just like their jaws are dropping, like, oh, dang, he got her, she got him. Oh, it's like they just understand that this is a really gigantically big moment. Jesus looks at this woman and he kneels down on the ground and he begins to draw in the sand. He just draws there. He doesn't say a word. Now, this woman was caught, supposedly caught, in the act of adultery. Now, I don't know you, I don't know about you, but usually adultery takes more than one person, right? It's kind of a, it takes two to tango kind of deal, right? And so here is only one part of the party, of the guilty party, in front of Jesus. Not the full throng, not both, not the man and the woman, just the woman there. And as I think about this story and as I think about what's going on here, there's a lot of different things that have kind, kind of come to light. That, that perhaps what this was was not just any old trap, but the Pharisees actually sent another Pharisee to seduce this woman, to get her to commit an act of adultery, and then catch them in the act and bring her in front of Jesus and let the other Pharisee go scot-free. Right? Like this purely hypocritical thing taking place here, right? Like pure hypocrisy going on. Or I think about it in terms of like, if they catch her in the act, she's not going to be clothed, right? Neither would the man. But they grab her and they begin to drag her through the streets because this is taking place in the temple, like here in the church. I've never seen or heard of anybody committing adultery inside of a church, right? Like actually doing that thing on top of the altar. What, you know what I mean? Like I've never heard of or seen that take place. So it would require it to be one of like these houses around in the neighborhood, right? And, and when the Pharisees barge into that house, they have to drag her through the streets because she's not going to be very willing to come, is she? Right? Like you have these, these like five grown men barge through a door and be like, you're coming with me. You'd be like, no. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure she would have fought with all that she had, scraping at their faces and at their arms with her nails, kicking and swinging and tossing stuff, trying to get away, trying to find a space of safety. But the Pharisees grab her. They finally subdue her. They finally get a hold of her, and they drag her through the street one block, two blocks, three blocks, 20 blocks. Who knows how long this journey was, but they drag her through the streets, and the Pharisees were one for making a scene as well. They wanted to get everyone on their side. You see, there was a belief back in the day during this time that the only way that the Messiah would return, this long-promised Messiah that would come and free them from their oppression, the only way in which this is going to happen is if everyone stopped sinning all at the same time for a whole day. 
outlandish, right? Like, I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. But that's what they believed. And so they made these giant, huge spectacles of sin, of things that people were doing, catching them in that, to frighten people from not sinning again, so that the Messiah would return. Their eye was on the prize of the Messiah. Their eye was on the prize of this freedom of oppression. That's what they wanted. That's what they had hoped for. That was their long-standing desire. And here's this woman, drugged through the streets as they begin to call out to the crowds, Adulteress! Adulteress! They're screaming at the top of their lungs. It's five Pharisees, and then it's ten Pharisees, and then it's twenty Pharisees. This huge mob action begins to take place as they drag her through the streets. I'm sure she was grabbing at sheets or anything to wrap herself up in as she is paraded through this. As people began to throw fruit or cucumbers or whatever at her. I, I don't know if you're Game of Thrones fans, but it was one of the most difficult scenes I have ever seen in that television show. When Cersei was paraded through the crowd, completely naked, shackled, paraded through the crowd by the religious establishment of the day, of, of this story, and everyone at the top of their lungs are yelling, shame, 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 as she is paraded through. This is the image that I have of this woman, that she is being shamed, and only her. And they throw her in front of Jesus. And they say, the law tells us we're supposed to stone this woman. But the trap that they were setting was, if Jesus did actually tell everyone to stone her, as the law prescribes, as the law requires, then the Pharisees would have the right to go to the Roman Empire, which ruled over them, to say, this man just called for the death penalty for this woman. We know that the Roman Empire, the Roman government, are the only ones at this point that can call for the death penalty. And so he just did that. You need to arrest him. You need to kill him because he's acting like Caesar. That was the first trap that they were setting. If, however, Jesus says, don't stone them, don't stone her whatsoever, he would have lost stature and standing in the Jewish community because he would have been breaking the law of Moses. It's a catch-22. You can either say, yes, let's stone the woman and lose all credibility, or uh, be arrested by the Roman government, the Roman Empire, and thrown in jail and you're no longer a problem. Or you can say, don't stone the woman, and guess what? All of your, all of it, is, all of your reputation is gone up in smoke, poof. That's, that's all we got. It's this or that. And Jesus kneels down to the ground and begins to draw. He draws in the sand. He writes in the sand. We, we have no idea what he's writing. We have no idea what he is saying in this place, in this space, in this moment. We have no idea, but I, I kind of have this belief in, this, this, in the back of my head because of how this story turns out and because of the Jesus that I have come to know that when he drops down to his knee, that he begins to whisper to the woman, it's okay, it's okay, you're gonna be okay. I've got this, I've got you. He begins to draw or write in the sand and 
biblical scholars have speculated for ages and millennia about what it is that Jesus is actually writing in this sand. Some have said, oh, he's, he's beginning to write down all of the capital punishmentable offenses that each one of those Pharisees had committed. He, he begins to write down their names and writing down, oh, well, you did this. You're wearing something that is not appropriate. You are eating food that is not appropriate. You're doing this in secret, and you actually are having an affair behind their back as well. He just begins to write and write and write and write. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees begin to get really impatient with Jesus as he sits down there and begins to write. They say, what say you, Jesus? Come on. We need an answer. What are you going to do about this woman? And Jesus continues to write, continues to stay silent, continues to hold his position, hold the line. When he stands up, he looks at them, and he says, He who is without sin may cast the first stone. Go ahead. If you're so pure, if you're so without sin, Go ahead and chuck that rock at her. You can start the processional. You can start the parade. What's really fascinating about this is according to the Jewish law and the Jewish scriptures of the day and at that time, one little line stands out. It says, there is no one righteous. There's, there's no one without sin. No, not one. Jesus uses the law to give them grace, to give her grace, to give her space. And each and every one of the Pharisees that are standing in this space, surrounded by a crowd of people, begin to drop the rocks that they brought with them. And as she sits there huddled down, cowering on the ground, she hears a thud, 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 thud. Of all of these giant rocks, now, now, stoning isn't just grabbing like the, the pebbles and the, the tiny rocks that we have that are outside, right? It's grabbing these giant boulder-like things, well, not boulders, but these giant like paver stones, right? Or these giant rocks that would use to hold open a door, taking them and chucking them with all your force. It's like, it's like shot put, right? Like some people would be like turning and like, ah, just chucking them at her until they would hit her, knock her down to the ground, and then they would literally bury her alive under all of these rocks where she would stay until she died. She would suffocate and bleed to death from all of the blunt force trauma, from all of the weight that is being pushed down upon her. This was what they were sentencing her to, was this type of death. And Jesus says, he who is without, stone, without sin may cast the first stone. And they walk away. But the crowd remains. This giant, humongous crowd remains. I'm sure they've collected more people along the way because of what the Pharisees had said, dragging her through the street. Shame, adulteress. The crowd grows and builds and builds and builds. And Jesus is down on the ground once again as all the rocks are being dropped and he's writing in the sand. And again, scholars have no idea what he does in this space. For my own personal amusement, for sometimes I, I just wish that he was just playing tic-tac-toe. Right? He's just doing something silly and fun right down there. But the heart of Jesus calls me to believe that perhaps what he was writing down there the second time 
If the first time he was advocating for her in his writing, if he was saying like, okay, here's all your sins. The second time, I want to believe that he was down there just writing, I love you. I love you. You're a beautiful child of God. You are wanted. You are needed. You are cared for. You are loved. You matter. I want to believe that that's what Jesus was doing in that space. And nobody has argued with me otherwise, so that's fine. So I, I will hold on to that, right? Because I believe that shows the heart of this Jesus that we follow, of the posture that this God has towards us as one of grace, one of rescue, one of mercy, one of justice. And at the same time, that that is the same posture that we are to have towards our fellow man, our fellow woman, our fellow brothers, our fellow sisters. That this is our posture in the world as we represent Jesus. I was fired. I was fired. Because, not just because of this story, but because of those nuggets of truth that bubbled up to the surface for me. When we were at this church serving, I got in a lot of trouble from time to time because I continued to advocate for the least of these. We, we did immigration workshops and, 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 and work with other pastors in the area, and the church was really uncomfortable with it. They weren't super excited or super happy with it whatsoever, and for them to just cut me loose probably made it a little bit easier for them because then they could just say simply, like, we've dealt with that problem. We've dealt with this social justice problem, and we can push that aside and not really have to deal with it anymore. That's, that's quite possible. I, I don't know. However, as these stories began to unfold for me, and as this Jesus was made more and more apparent, more and more aware of, of the love that he has for everyone, the love that he continues to call out of us towards other people, I could no longer be silent about these things. And when we decided to plant a new church, and they said, they said peace out, <laughs> My response was, okay, I'm going to love you guys anyways. I think you've made a really terrible, horrible decision, but I'm going to love you guys anyways. And, and, and not only that, but that's the kind of church that we're going to be creating. A church that centers itself around this ethic of love. A church that centers itself around the stories of Jesus and how he interacted with people, how he treated people, how he loved people. That's the kind of place that we wanted to create, and that's the kind of place that I kind of got fired for, right? And that's okay. That's okay because we're here now as a new church that is ready to set forth towards this new way of being, of loving everyone, always. Anyways, that there will be nothing that stops us from loving people well. Of when the woman is caught in this precarious place, when she is stuck in between literally a rock and a hard place, that we would be a creative people that step into that to find the solutions that are good and right and well, to do the work of figuring out how we love people anyways, 
and always, no matter what. I want us to be a community of expanding love to where the, the slogan, you belong here on the banner in the back, is not just a slogan. It's not just something that's a marketing tool or a marketing ploy, but something that we actually put into practice because of the amount of love that we continue to pour out to people. That anyone and everyone possible can be long here. That they can find hope here. That they can find a safe space here. That they can find refuge here amongst us as a community. That we would take care of them beautifully and wonderfully and well. That we would be a people of such remarkable love, of love that is so big, that is so beautiful, that people can't but see that God is in this place. That God is among us, working in and through us wherever we go. I want us to be a community of expanding love that loves everyone and makes sure they feel as if they belong here in this place. In the couple of months that we were living in my parents' basement, we drove over to my in-law's house and I took this picture of Elliot. Kind of a fun picture. She was three years old in this picture. That's how long uh, this journey, this origin story has been going. And she's in the park just across the street, and parental guilt sucks. I don't know if you know this or not. Parental guilt sucks. It's so hard, and it is so heavy, and it's so painful. Here we were in this park across the street. We had literally just ripped her away from her friends, the only people that she had ever known. We pulled her out of this preschool that she loved from her best friend, from, from her grandparents, like everything. She was being pulled and torn away to make this move here to Seattle. And I was feeling it that day. I mean, I was really feeling the guilt, having second and third and 15th thoughts of what, what are we doing? Why did we do this? This is so dumb. I'm causing her so much pain. She was sad. I mean, she was really sad despite the picture because she was at a playground and she was having fun. But she was really sad. And she told us that. She was really nervous and all these sorts of things. And shortly after I took this picture, I bent down and I asked her, I said, Honey, do you know why we're moving to Seattle? And she said, Yeah, Papa. We're going to tell people about Jesus. That'll erase some parental guilt <laughs> when your kids just get it. We're moving to Seattle to tell people about Jesus. <laughs> Slam the book shut. You got me. The Jesus that we moved here and this community is beginning to form around and tell people about is about this Jesus that takes place in John chapter 8. This Jesus that shows an, un, like an unbelievably remarkable amount of love to everyone. That this is the people that God has called us to be. That this is our origin story. 
as a church, to be a people that are here to tell people about Jesus. But the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus of the stories in the gospel, the Jesus who shows grace and mercy and love, who fights for justice, who fights for peace, who fights for these things. On our very first Sunday, we created this. Do you remember this? Hmm. These were kind of the prayers and the dreams of what we wanted to be as a church that day. There's some beautiful things on here, and I'm going to read them in a second because I know it's too far for some of you. (laughs) But there's some beautiful things on here because a lot of this is starting to come true. It's been four months, and we're already beginning to start this way. This is a part of our origin story. We wanted to be a church of newness, where we celebrate a God of newness. This this God that is constituting new things uh, underneath the space needle. He's my life. A promise keeper, grace and peace, a God of hope, of radical inclusion, of acceptance, an almighty God, a different kind of king serving a different kind of kingdom. Goodness, always with me. God is it. Doesn't much matter what I think. (laughs) Wholeness. Like these are the things that we're starting to become. We're starting to become a place of radical inclusion. I think about the work that we're doing at Tent City Five. We're starting to become a place of acceptance where people are beginning to come in and we're beginning to fold them into our community as we love them well. We have to continue in this role. We have to continue in this space. We have to continue to love anyways because this is who we are. This is who we are becoming and this is where we're heading. I'm a big fan of Jesus. I'm a big fan of the Jesus of Scripture. I'm a big fan of what he did. But I don't want to just be a fan. I want to follow this Jesus. I want to be like this Jesus. And I want a community to rally around that kind of Jesus and to be that as well, together as a church and also individually, wherever we may live, wherever we may work, wherever we step out, to be like that Jesus, to embody it, to embody him in the here and now. This, this is what belonging is. This is what it means to live a life united. This is what it means to be a church united. This is what it means to set forth with an ethic of love as a people of love in this time and in this space. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the work that he not only did, but continues to show us day in and day out. How he continues to be our story. Father, may we live into that. May we be that more and more every single day. Help us to be that kind of a church. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 3rd Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives 
to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.